Well, tonight, the Philadelphia Eagles will face off against the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 57. And this has also been, yeah, we got some people excited about it. And it's also been nicknamed the Kelsey Bowl because older brother Jason Kelsey plays for the Eagles while younger brother Travis is an all-star on the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 127, you might think that Travis has the upper hand because that Psalm says, children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. And that sure sounds like the way Travis Kelsey is an all-star and a, uh, a threat, an offensive weapon in the hands of his quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. But, well, let's keep in mind too, we all know the name of Chiefs Stadium is Arrowhead Stadium. But don't be misled because this song tells us that children born to a young man and Jason is the older brother, which means their father was a younger man when Jason was born than he was when brother Travis was born. So Jason is actually the child born to the young man, and he is like that arrow for the warrior. After all, 1 John 2 tells us that anyone who loves his brother is living in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. So anyone who loves his brother. Well, you know where the Eagles are from? The city of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Anyone who loves his brother, this sure seems to point that God's favor is on the Eagles in tonight's big game. But it's not quite as simple as those few verses might make it sound. Because Psalm 120 seems to be speaking again of Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes when it says this, he will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows. And we know that Patrick Mahomes is a sharp shooter with that football. He can zing that thing anywhere he wants it to go. And Proverbs 7 seems to echo this sentiment as it speaks of the eagles awaiting the arrow that would pierce their hearts. He was like a bird flying into a snare. That does not sound good for the Philadelphia Eagles facing off against Patrick Mahomes tonight. But there's another twist. Psalm 11 tells us, fly like a bird to the mountains for safety. It sure seems that God is providing protection for those eagles, telling them where to go. We all know the eagles' victory song is fly, eagles, fly. And the wicked are stringing their bows and fitting their arrows for the bowstrings. So speaking of those with the bows and arrows as wicked seems an ominous threat for the chiefs tonight as they face off against the eagles. Psalm 91 seems to speak more encouragement to those eagles. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. It seems that the eagles have God's providence on their side. After all, the metaphor of Psalm 103 kind of seals this deal for them. God satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the... Eagles. Friends, here's what this means, church. If we grossly take scripture out of context and make the Bible say something it's never intended to say, then we can assume from all these verses that the Eagles will emerge victorious in tonight's big game against the Chiefs. And I'm seeing some death glares from the Chiefs fans in the audience right now. So let me just say this. That is a terrible way to read the Bible, right? Can we all agree on that? That is a bad way to read the Bible. So whatever you do, like it's fun, but don't do that for serious. Like don't do that in your day-to-day living because it just won't go well for you. In fact, I want us to switch gears quite a bit and take a look at a passage from Scripture today the way we should approach the Bible to see what God might have for us in the passage. So we're going to take a look today at Jesus' baptism. 
And before we do, I want to let you know, this is actually chapter six of the book, Quest 52. This is the devotional book we are using as our guide this year as we take the entire year to pursue Jesus, to get to know him better. Not just to know more about him, but to get to know him better. If you don't yet have a copy of this, you can pick one up in the lobby today. You can get a couple on discount for your friends as well. Share with them. Invite them to read along with you. But this week, we are in chapter six. If you're joining us online and you need a copy, you can send a message to your host or just jump in the chat space and say, hey, I need a book. And we will find a way to get one to you. So let's dig right in. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this word repent means just what this word here says. Turn. To repent is to turn away from. And so what John was telling them was, turn away from your sin and turn toward God. Turn away from your sin, turn toward God. And his passage continues. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And as they did, his message was clear. When they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now, this is a key element. They confessed their sin. They acknowledged that they had sin in their life. They called it sin. They said what it is. They didn't find a euphemism to make it more spiritually appealing or soften it. They called sin, sin. They confessed that they had it, that it was wrong, and they needed help because on their own they could not overcome it. And so they were turning to God and turning away from those sins, confessing the wrong in their life. And then we move on in this passage. John says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. Those who turn away from sin and turn towards God, I baptize them. Now this word baptize can be a little tricky for us because it's actually a Greek word, baptizo. And what we did was way back in the day when they were translating the Bible, instead of translating that word, they just transliterated it. They just took the Greek word and plucked it into the English language. And that can get a little sidetracked at times because we kind of miss what that word actually means and it can start to mean some different things for us when we transliterate instead of translate. So the actual word itself means to dip, to dunk, to drown, to immerse, to plunge under. So we might better refer to John the Baptist as John the Baptizer. He was not the founder of the Baptist faith, by the way. But John the baptizer, we might refer to him as John the drowner. That'd be kind of fun. Wouldn't that go well in church? We call him John the dunker. Yeah, if you're from New England where they got Dunkin' Donuts, that might get a little confused, but it kind of gets the point across. You dunk him in. John the immerser is one of the ways I like to call him. John the dunker, John the immerser. Because that's what he was doing. He was immersing people into a new life, into a repentant spirit. So... This takes on a whole new twist, though, when Jesus shows up on the scene. Next verse we're going to look at. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River. Now, keep this in mind. From Galilee to the Jordan is a trek of about 40 miles. And what we know of Jesus is he traveled most places on foot. Jesus trekked 40 miles back in the day when part of that trek was somewhat perilous, somewhat dangerous. He trekked the 40 miles from Galilee to the Jordan River on foot. Why? Also, he could be baptized by John. 
But when he got there, this is the interaction John had with him. John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? And that's a legit question from John. John is saying, Jesus, if you're perfect and you are, then why do you need to be baptized? And why me of all people? Shouldn't you be baptizing me and everyone else here? You know, John looks at him and says, Jesus, if you're perfect, do you need this? And shouldn't this be reversed? Like, shouldn't you be the one baptizing? What's going on here? And I love how Jesus responds to him because he answers that question. Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. Now, this phrase, all that God requires in the New Living Translation, I think the New International Version gets it a little more accurate there. It says to fulfill all righteousness. Two key words, fulfill and righteousness. Fulfill, to bring it to completion, to do all that's necessary for something to happen. Now, righteousness can be one of those words that gets really churchy. We talk about righteousness and what it means to be righteous, but what does righteous really mean? Maybe the best way, the easiest way for you to think of it is this. It means to be made right with God. If you are righteous, then you are right with God. So Jesus says, we got to do whatever's necessary and all that's necessary to help all of you be right with God. So then he's baptized. Now, in his baptism, Jesus actually identifies with us. In our baptism, we identify with Jesus and who he is. In our baptism, we identify with him. In his baptism, he was actually identifying with us in our humanness. See, when we are baptized, we look back to the cross. We look back at what God accomplished on the cross to save us from our sins. We look back to Jesus' substitutionary death for us, where he took on our sin, our shame, our guilt, and he wore that on his shoulders on the cross. Fully God and fully man and completely sinless, he died for us to save us from our sins. And so we look back to that, to the death, the burial, and the glorious resurrection. But in his baptism, Jesus was looking ahead to that death and burial and resurrection. He was looking ahead at what was to come. This is a foreshadowing of that event. So just as Jesus was vicariously uh, baptized for us, he then was also substitutionary, uh, crucified for us. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Well, after his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water, and the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. A voice from heaven cried out, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see in this passage three sets of three in quick succession. And the first two of them, we just took a look at. The first one is Father, Son, and Spirit. The, the Trinity, the Godhead, shows up all at once in this passage. Now, when I mention Trinity, let me just tell you, your mind might kind of, trying to understand who God is. Because it's a difficult subject for us to wrap our minds around. And theologians have wrestled with this for centuries. It's a difficult subject. And part of the reason is because we are finite people with limited capacity trying to understand an infinite, unlimited God. Now, there's some beauty to that. Because if, if we think of it this way, if we could fully comprehend God, that might make us 
above God, like more powerful than God, smarter than God. I don't want a God that I can fully comprehend. I, I kind of appreciate that there's some mystery and there's some stuff beyond me because there's a lot that I don't know. <laughs> and it's in a lot of areas. I understand how ships float and planes fly, but every time I throw water or I throw a piece of metal into the water or up into the sky, it sinks and it falls back down. So I know the physics, but it's beyond my comprehension of how all that stuff actually works. I'm glad there are people who figured it out much smarter than me. So just because we don't fully comprehend something doesn't mean it's not true. Same as with God. So the Trinity, to help us understand the three in one, the Father, Son, and Spirit, I'm, I'm gonna give us just a little bit of a clarifying statement for this. There is one God, only one God. And that God exists in three equal but distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Metaphors are helpful, but they always fall short because they're just that, they're a metaphor. They're to help us understand, but they're incomplete. It's going to fail us. But maybe this metaphor could help you. If you think of an egg, you have the shell, the white, and the yolk. You take away one of those pieces, you don't have a complete egg. You've got some eggness, but you don't really have the complete egg. It takes all three, the shell, the egg, the, the shell, the yolk, and the white to be the egg. But they're all three distinct from each other. They're separate, but they're equal in their eggness. Again, this is incomplete, but that's God. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three equal in eggness. It takes all three to have the Godhead. They are all one God, but three distinct persons. I know, I can tell by your eyes. You're right there with me. Like, yeah, okay. So it's challenging, but that's who God is. And in this three in one, they're all present at the same time. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, and the Son receives. And there we have our second set of the three. The Father speaks. And he speaks three statements that address three core issues, questions at the heart of every person everywhere throughout all time. Who am I? Where do I belong? And does my life matter? Do I make a difference? And God speaks directly to that as he speaks to the son. Who am I? You are my child. You're my son. Where do I belong? Well, I love you. You belong right here in my family. You belong in my love. And does my life matter? Yeah. I'm pleased with you. I notice you. I see you. And I approve of you. Now, you'll notice that when the father makes that statement to the son, it's prior to anything Jesus has done in his ministry. Jesus has not yet begun his ministry. In fact, this is like the launch pad for his ministry. Starting point, not ending point. It's kind of how baptism is. And Jesus has, to our awareness, not yet performed any miracles. And so prior to any of that, prior to the ministry and the miracles of Jesus, the Father looks at him and says, I'm pleased in you. I'm not pleased because of all the things you've done, of all the things you've accomplished, of now, I'm pleased with you because you are my child and because I love you simply as you are. Friends, God speaks that same truth to us at our baptism. For some of you, you've not yet taken that step. You have yet to hear that. Prior to our surrender to God, we are not his children. We are his enemies. But in that decision, when we surrender to God, allow him to lead us and to save us, we transition from enemy to friend to child. We gain the inheritance of heaven. 
And in that moment, God speaks that same truth over us. You are my child. I love you. I'm pleased with you. Not because of anything you do or don't do, but simply because of who you are, because I created you to know me, to be in relationship with me because I love you. I'm pleased in you. The truth we speak here often is that God loves us just as we are. He loves you just as you are. He also loves you way too much to let you stay that way. He's got so much more for you. And so God speaks these statements over him. So we have these three statements made from the three persons of the Godhead, and then we see immediately after that three temptations that Jesus faces. Now Mark summarizes it in his gospel, make it pretty succinct. At once the Spirit sent him, Jesus, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, that 40 days in the wilderness is a parallel to the 40 years that the Israelites spent out in the wilderness wandering as they had been tested in their faith and they failed. And what you would see in this passage is that Jesus was tempted, but he prevailed. Now, in our reading this week in chapter 6, Mark Moore gives us some great insights on this. I'm going to let you discover those for yourself. We're not going to get into too much of that right here. But I also want to let you know Matthew and Mark in their Gospels give a whole lot more detail to these temptations. They actually outline the three temptations, what happened, what was said, how Jesus responded, all of that. And that's part of our reading this week too. So I encourage you to read that in your Bible this week and to discover the details of that for yourself. We're not going to get too far into the details and the specifics of those temptations. But I do want us to see the pattern and the persistence of Satan and the response and the resistance of Jesus. See, Jesus had been out in the wilderness and he was fasting for 40 days. <clears throat> and at the end of that time, Satan comes to him and begins tempting him. And you can imagine fasting for 40 days. At the end of that, probably pretty tired, pretty lonely, pretty hungry, probably not at your best. If you're anything like me, you'd be very hangry at that moment. <laughs> and so in that moment, the enemy comes and starts taking jabs at Jesus. And he tempts him from one direction. Jesus resists. He comes out of another direction. Jesus resists. Comes out of another direction. Jesus resists again. Now, I don't know that those three temptations are the only three temptations Jesus faced. I think they're indicative of way more because what we know of the enemy is he just keeps going. He's going to hit us when we're at our lowest and our loneliest. And when we're exhausted, he's going to keep coming at us like he does. He just keeps coming. He's unrelenting. I don't know that those temptations all came at the end. I'm guessing there was much temptation all along those 40 days. And it probably amped up as the time went along. But... It's key for us to look at how Jesus responded each time. And one of the things that the enemy did, that Satan did, was he took Scripture and he twisted it. He, he totally turned it on its head to make it say what he wanted it to say, took it out of context, twisted a psalm around so that he could try and take a jab and, and get Jesus tempted to the point of sin. Now that's, that's not unlike how he speaks to some of us, how the enemy comes at some of us, Right? Like, it'd be kind of like if I give you that goofy Super Bowl prediction at the beginning of this, but I told you it was for reals. 
And then I said, by the way, I'm confident because the Bible tells us the Eagles are going to win. And, and so we're going to put some church money on that. Why don't you give a little more and we'll bet it and just give it to me. And like, I mean, that'd be pretty shady, right? But that's kind of how the enemy works. It's what he does. He's outlandish like that, but he does it usually in seductive, sneaky ways. We don't quite catch it. And every time the enemy comes at Jesus, Jesus responds in the same way, the same pattern of resistance from a biblical worldview. And what we learn here is that we need to do the same. We need to respond to temptation from a biblical worldview just as Jesus did. Now, some people say, yeah, Jesus responded with scripture every time. True. That's not enough. And some of you are like, whoa, that's like sacrilegious. Let me explain. Like you can know Bible verses and you can, when temptation comes, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to quote some Bible of that thing and I'll be fine. No. See, biblical worldview means we are shaped by God's word. Not just that we're familiar with it, but that it changes who we are. We've submitted to it. We're shaped by his word and we're surrendered to his will. So that God's word is not just something we know intellectually, but it's something we abide by in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment living. That it shapes who we are, how we respond, how we live. See, if you're not living this scripture, it won't do you much good to just quote it because you're already too late in the game. You got to have it as part of who you are, part of the DNA of your being. That's what it is to live with a biblical worldview. That scripture is so infused into who we are that it shapes our prayers, that it shapes our praises, that it shapes our interaction with one another, our relationships, our finances, our food. I mean, like everything we do, our life is shaped by it because we're surrendered to the will of God and shaped by the word of God that then when the enemy tries to get us, he's got no place. We just say, you know what? Yeah, I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm lonely. But guess what? I'm not buying it. Like Satan, you you go back to where you belong if you get my drift. And so we all know there are plenty of people who mishandle God's word. There are people who either by accident or by choice misrepresent the word of God. So for us to avoid being one of those people, either by choice or by accident, for us to avoid being misled by those people, for you to make sure that I'm never just a couple degrees off center. We all need to be people who are students of God's word, who rightly handle what his word would say to us. And there's tons of great resources I could give you. Two that I'm just gonna point out to you today that you have easy access to. One of them is Ozark Christian College professor Michael DeFazio's Uh, video course, and it's eight short sessions called How to Read the Bible. And you can access that through our grow resources on our webpage, oklonacc.org. You can get to it there. If you're watching us online or you're using the sermon notes uh, provided for you, then you'll have the link to that. The other one is the book by Gordon Fee, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And I know I mentioned a book or I mentioned eight videos. You're like, oh man, like that's a lot. Yeah, maybe. But we all know we spend plenty of time. It's not that we don't have time for these things. We don't always make time for it. We got time for social media. We got time to like watch the game and watch the news. Like some of us like, man, you'd be better off like watching this and not watching the news. I mean, it's just, there's so much that we make time for elsewhere. This is time well spent. It's well worth it. It will be worth your time investment because this is what will shape you in the things that will matter most and help you most.
Now, I also want to acknowledge that when Jesus was tempted, he was fully tempted. Don't think that because he was God, he was not susceptible to temptation. Because it's true, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. And this is another one of those, right? Like my brain is not big enough for this. But Jesus was fully God, fully human. But scripture tells us that he set all the privilege and the power of his godness to the side so he could embrace the frailty of humanness. And so he was fully human as we are just without sin. So when he was tempted, he was actually tempted. He wasn't just like going through the motions as like superhero Jesus on the scene to like, ah, we'll show you how to resist. No, like he was tempted as we are. In fact, scripture tells us he, he was tempted in every way as we are. And he resisted not by like flexing his God muscles. He resisted by surrendering his humanity to the will and the way and the word of God, allowing the spirit to empower him, to lead him, to guide him, to show him where to go. And that's, for us as well, it's a biblical worldview. So the beautiful thing about that is that he gets it, and he gets us. Jesus has been where we are. He's been tempted in all the ways you've been tempted. He's been challenged in all the ways you've been challenged, and he understands it, he gets it. But he was also able to resist it, and he shows us the pattern for how. Isn't it great to have a God who gets us, who loves us enough that he would come here to be as one of us, to save us from ourselves. So friends, keep this in mind. When you surrender to Jesus, you will be tempted. The enemy will come at you. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Oftentimes, subtle and seductive, secretive, but every time, he's gonna try and get you to reverse what you did the moment you surrender to him. Every time he's gonna, like when you surrender, you turn from your sin and turn towards God. You repent and turn to God, right? Turn away from sin, turn towards God. The enemy wants you to reverse that, to turn away from God and turn back to sin. Like that's his game plan. Just know every time that's what he wants you to do. So if there's something that's getting you to look away from God, it's probably the enemy. It's probably not good. Like keep your eyes on God. That's the game plan. So for us, we got to continually turn away from sin and turn toward God. And that's not just like once when we're baptized, like, oh, I'm good now. Like it washes the guilt away. That's beautiful. I wish it took away our propensity to sin, our ability to sin. It doesn't. So because of that, confession and repentance, acknowledging that we have sin, our sin is wrong, and we need to turn from that sin and turn towards God, that's a daily thing. That might be a moment-by-moment moment thing on some days. That's not just a one-time thing. But we will be tempted. We'll be tempted to doubt if God is big enough to actually provide for all we need. We'll be tempted to test the limits of God's love. How much does he love us? How big is his grace? How far can I go in sin? Does his grace really cover over all the things I may have messed up in my life? And by the way, the answer to that is yes. You cannot out the grace of God. You cannot stretch your sin further than the mercy of God. His arms were stretched so wide on the cross, his shoulders so broad, he shouldered all of that for us. He took the guilt away. God loves you so much. You cannot out his love and his grace. We'll be tempted to define ourselves by our successes or our failures, having an inflated view of ourselves or such a deflated view of ourselves that we miss God's view of us, that we are his children, loved by him. 
I love that Zechariah 3.17 tells us that God dances over us. He sings a song over us. He is a doting father singing in delight, dancing in delight over his children, over you. We'll be tempted to desire power and praise from others. We'll be tempted to take the power and the praise that belong only to God and use it for ourselves. Tempted to build our kingdoms instead of his. And the only way to resist on the regular is to live surrendered. Surrendered to his will, shaped by his word, living out of a biblical worldview. The only way is that we live surrendered. And that sounds so counterintuitive, right? Because we know that victory only comes through surrender. That's the only way we get to victory is through surrender. But that sounds so backwards for the way everything else in life operates. Like if you watch the big game tonight and the Kansas City Chiefs come out and they're like, you know what, we think we can win this game if we just surrender to the Eagles. Probably not going to go well for them. There's gonna be a lot of disappointed fans in Kansas City, right? There's gonna be disappointed fans in Kansas City anyway, I'm just saying. But we'll just see what people do with that. It's fine words. I'm a Bears fan. I've been disappointed all season, all right? Like, here we go. But this is what baptism is all about. Baptism is where we surrender ourselves to find victory, where we lay ourselves down surrendering to God, where we die to our old way of doing it. And don't think that this means we lose ourselves in this. Like to die to self does not mean you lose your identity and you lose who you are. It's actually you wash away all the baggage and the burden of sin that has clouded who you actually are, that has confused who you are, that's messed with your identity and thought you made you think you're somebody different than you are. It's in this that we wash all that mess away. We come up in this clean new picture of life to discover who we actually are in Christ the full, truest version of ourselves that we begin to lean into and that we find the true life that he has for us. It's this beautiful picture. It's so counterintuitive, but it's exactly the way it is. You know, when we're baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into his death, into his burial, into the crucifixion, but we're resurrected to brand new life with him. Our sin guilt washed away. In his baptism, Jesus identified with us. In our baptism, we identify with him. I love how the apostle Paul, who was an early church planner and missionary, a guy who had once opposed the church, opposed Jesus, encountered Jesus, had his life changed by Jesus, surrendered to Jesus, followed Jesus, made it his mission to make Jesus famous. He wrote to a, a young church in an area called Galatia in the first century, and he wrote these words to him. It says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Not through what you've done or not done, not about your works, not because you deserve it, but because your faith in Jesus, that he has done it for you. And you've surrendered to him to make him savior and leader in your life. And all of you who've done that, you were baptized into Christ and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. I love that picture. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. It's been fun today to see some of you wearing your jerseys, your team colors, to see some representation there. Now, any of you who are wearing those team colors ever play on that pro team? I didn't think so. Me neither. (laughs) I did have a season of life where I coached quite a bit. And I always used to tell my athletes when I was coaching, when you wear this jersey, when you wear this uniform, when you wear these colors, you represent You represent yourself, you represent the sport, you represent your teammates, you represent your team, you represent your town, you represent your coaching staff, you represent the legacy of all those who have worn these before you. When you put on this uniform and you're actually on the team, you represent. 
And so this should shape who we are and how we are. Well, we're told here by Paul that we are clothed in Christ. See, when we are baptized into Jesus, when we surrender to him, begin the new life in him, it's as though we are traded from the worst team to the best team. Right? It's like we've switched teams. And we get the best signing bonus ever because you sign your life to Jesus. When you confess that he is Savior and leader, then you receive from him peace and joy and forgiveness and freedom, salvation, heaven. I ain't no sign and bonus can beat with that, right? And so as you begin this journey with Jesus, if we take that team analogy, it's, it's like we're on a new team. We're a new team. We're, we're on team Jesus. We, we got a whole new uniform. We clothe ourselves with the things of Christ. Like we have the Jesus jersey we wear. We've got a new coach and play caller, the father who sets the pattern, gives us the boundaries and coaches us where to go. We've got a whole new playbook, his Bible, and we do well to know it and to live according to it, to practice it, to allow it to shape us and mold us because it's what's best for us. We get a whole new team full of teammates. And some of those teammates, they've been at it for a while. They're like the varsity captains, right? They've been leading. They're the veterans on the squad. They're showing us how to do it. They're, They're teaching us and equipping us and showing us the ropes. Some of them, like all those folks who got baptized today, we had one in first service too, right? Like six people getting baptized today, y'all. They're like the rookies on the team. Yeah, we should celebrate that. That's worth celebrating. <clears throat> they might be the rookies on the team. Welcome. But guess what? Nobody sits the bench. Nobody's in the bleachers. Nobody's riding the sidelines because this requires all of us to be in the game, on the field all the time. There is no, like, maybe I'll just sit on the side and watch and observe. No, we're all in this game, and it's what's required of us. So, there will be times in this game, if you will, where the enemy will try to take you out. He will tempt you. He will taunt you. He will test you. He will terrorize you. He will try to get in your mind and make you think things different of you than what's true of you. And cheap shots are especially. Satan and his minions, man, their cheap shots are the way they play. So when that happens, you remind yourself of what is true of you, what the Father has spoken, that you are his child, that you are loved, and that he is pleased in you. That does not mean that God is ever pleased with our sin, but our sin is not the only thing that defines us. The blood of Jesus defines us. He is pleased in you. He loves you simply because you are his child. Some of you, you've never heard that before. You need to hear that today. He desires relationship with you. And friends, we don't have to do some goofy Bible messing like we did at the beginning of the message to figure out how all this is gonna end. We don't need a crystal ball. We don't need to build a DeLorean and drive it into the future. We've already got it for us. I've read ahead, spoiler alert, the good guys win at the end. And you side with the right team, you wanna be on the winning team. And some of you still trying to decide which team you wanna be on. You side with the wrong team. You might make some great plays, you might you know, have some successes, you might score some points along the way, but at the end, you lose. And we're not talking like we gamble with money, this is a gamble with your life. And so to live surrendered is to live in the freedom that Jesus brings. There were those, I guarantee, at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus who thought they won. 
They thought they had got it. They just didn't know that there was a great play about to happen, the resurrection. Greatest comeback in history. And by the way, if you're one of those people who's like, man, I'm just not sure. I think maybe I've, I've gone too far. I'm gonna tell you again, our God is a God who specializes in comeback victories. You cannot be too far gone for the grace of God. He will take whatever has happened in your past, he will redeem it for your better future. So you surrender it to him. He's got you. He's the God of the comeback. He's the God of the second chance. And when he returns for the final victory, when he comes again, man, that's gonna be the greatest lopsided victory in history. And all of, of the world's gonna erupt in praise for him, but you better make sure you're on the right side when that happens. So friend, let me, let me ask, have you surrendered to him? You may have gotten wet in the water, but have you immersed your life into Jesus? Have you allowed him to lead, to shape, to guide? Have you surrendered to him? Some of you, you're still deciding which team you wanna be on, so let me just give you the same challenge that Ananias gave to Paul. Paul, that church planner who wrote to Galatians. When Paul encountered Christ, Ananias said this to him. He said, Paul, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for, man? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on Jesus' name. So friends, some of you, you're not sure. So I'm just gonna ask you that same question. What are you waiting for? What's in your way? In a moment, we're gonna stand and sing. And as we do, I wanna encourage you to be mindful of what we've talked of here today. To, to give thought, to reflect. <clears throat> for some of you, maybe you've surrendered, but maybe you've, you've gotten to the point where you, you've just been sitting on the sidelines. Maybe you're, you're up in the bleachers watching other people on the field. Is, is there a decision that you need to make today to, to get in the game, if you will? Uh, what, what is the next step God has for you? Do you need to jump into a group? Do you need to serve? Do you need to to practice generosity with your time and, and your abilities, your resources. Well, what, what's the next step God has for you? And for some of you, man, you've just been beat up by temptation. But you've been fighting alone, forgetting you've got a whole team here to fight for you, to fight on your behalf. And if you've been beat up by temptation, I just want to invite you. We're going to have some folks down by the cross and over here by the baptistry. You can come forward and receive some prayer because you don't have to do it alone. God did not design us to do it alone. And if you're one of those people who has yet to make the decision to surrender to Jesus, I just ask again, what are you waiting for? Today is your day. Today is your day. So let's stand. I'm gonna invite you all to stand with me as we pray. I'm gonna invite you to take a, a posture while we pray. Because we said, victory only comes through surrender. And the beautiful thing is, it's the same symbol for both. We see that when people are in victory, they raise their hands in victory. So I'm gonna invite you, if you have already surrendered to Jesus, you raise your hands high in victory as we pray. And for those of you who have not yet, you raise your hands high in surrender. 
as you surrender to him because it's only through the hands high of surrender that we get to hold our hands high in victory. So please raise your hands with me. Let's pray. You can keep those hands raised after we pray. You can keep them raised for the song if you want. God, we come to you now. We thank you that you are the God who is victorious, that you rose victorious over the grave, that you rose victorious over sin and shame and doubt and Satan. And you have come for us because you love us, that you see us as your children. God, when we surrender to you, we are born into your family. It's like a whole brand new birth. And we find a whole brand new life in that. God, I thank you for those who have surrendered to you before. God, would you give us the courage and the wisdom to continue to take the next step that we each need to take to show you as God to be faithful to your calling upon our lives, that we would never be content to sit on the sidelines, to sit on the bleachers, but that we would always stay faithful to our very last breath. God, I pray for those who are wrestling with temptation, that in this moment, you would give them the courage to come forward, to not fight alone, but to receive the, the love, the prayers, the power of the family of God to go on their behalf. God, that you would give them the courage to resist, that you would give them the wisdom to respond from a biblical worldview to the temptation and the testing of the enemy on them. And God, for all who have not yet surrendered to you, whether in person or online, watching us right now or on demand, God, I pray for them that in this moment, it would be the defining moment of their life where they surrender and they put the old life to death and they're raised up to a brand new life in you. God, we pray that for those here with us right now. I pray for them to have the courage. Jesus, you took 40 miles from Galilee to Jordan. I pray for the courage for those in this room to just take a few steps to come and surrender themselves to you. Jesus, we pray this, that you would have all the glory, the praise that is due your name and yours alone. We pray it. All glory to you, Jesus. Amen.